It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast Headspace, which is now in its new weekly format. We bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect, and today we welcome Stephen Pinker, the psychologist and author whose new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress, argues that the world is pretty much getting better on every front, and that authoritarians such as Trump are a bit of a backlash rather than uh, anything to worry about in the picture of the overall trend. It's crucial not to identify everything that a Western power does with the Enlightenment. Quite the contrary, and, and I strongly resist uh, characterizing the Enlightenment as a uh, Western uh, idea. Also in the studio today with me is Philip Ball, who reviews Stephen's book in the latest issue of Prospect, and Samir Rahim, who is our book's editor. Um, Stephen, um, nice to see you, and I'm pleased you're so cheerful. It's my first thought on, uh, on on looking through your book, but in a world of Trump and trade wars and real wars and environmental degradation and uh, mass um, protests about the routine um, uh, sort of um, mistreatment of, of women. What, why should everyone be chirpy and believe that things are getting better? Yes. Uh, and I, I should emphasize that I'm not so much cheerful as grateful or appreciative of progress that we've made. Uh, it's certainly not a call to be complacent about the very real challenges that we face, Trump uh, being high on the list. But we should uh, appreciate the progress that, that we've made. By uh, any standard, the uh, status of women has uh, improved. The protests are continuing that process, but even measures of sexual harassment have shown that they have been in decline in, uh, in recent years. And similarly, pretty much anything that you want to measure, uh, human longevity, um, violent crime, deaths in war, deaths from uh, terrorism, have all been, uh, over, over the uh, span of decades or longer, uh, in decline. With, uh, with, with ups and downs, uh, for example, the rate of death in war showed a, a, an uptick with the Syrian civil war starting in 2011, although even that is, uh, has, has been reversed. Um, so it's not, progress is not magic, and it, it by no means is it a process that just uh, happens by itself or by any mystical arc of justice. Uh, it is, uh, or so I argue, the result of uh, implementing the ideals of the Enlightenment, namely reason, science, and humanism. Um, there's some wonderful kind of mix of examples in, in, in the very eclectic book of, of where things are 
you know, with some bumps in the road, generally getting better. There's some that people won't believe, but I'm sure must be true. Like the uh, hours of work coming down, people all think they're working longer hours, but you've got convincing stuff in there saying they're not. Some are stunning to me anyway, that we could have massively reduced the number of people being struck fatally by lightning. Um, And then some... Uh, you, you suggest that on the internet there's a bit less misogyny than there used to be and some of them like that I found just quite hard to... I'm not sure about the internet. I'm talking about real-life cases of harassment. That is, in Didn't surveys... you have um, Google searches? Oh, oh, in searches, yeah, that's true. So Google searches for misogynistic jokes, for racist jokes, for uh, homophobic jokes have all been in decline uh, for as long as we have uh, have data. And the advantage of using Google searches as, a, uh, kind of as an indicator of... Uh, prejudices that they aren't contaminated by the uh, desire to uh, appeal socially acceptable to a pollster. I mean, I see. These are these are done in the, in the privacy of someone's keyboard, and they're uh, they're an indicator of whether you actually find these these uh, rather revolting jokes amusing privately. Uh, Samir, do you did you leave through this feeling reassured? Uh, no, yes, reassured. It's it is nice to see a. Uh, uh, a manifesto for optimism in many ways. Um, I was wondering, though, because uh, as I was uh, putting this to press, we had the appalling gun crime uh, attack uh, in Florida, which left 17 people, uh, children, uh, dead. And I was wondering whether um, that both, in a way, supports your argument and also maybe challenges it. Because, first of all, you've got the idea that you know people have this irrational, at least it seems to us in Europe, attachment to guns, um, which is based on fealty to a text that was written 200 years ago, the Second Amendment, and that they need to sort of be more, you know, this maybe needs to be modernised and updated. On the other hand, technological improvements led to guns, which make it a lot easier to kill people. Well, the I think it's a mistake to allow a, a particular incident in the news to um, affect your picture of uh, the direction in which history is going, particularly rampage shootings and terrorist attacks, which are a kind of journalist bait that are uh, precisely designed to achieve notoriety and attention. Uh, in the overall scheme of violence, they're actually a, a pretty small part of it. In, in the United States, which is in many ways an outlier among Western democracies in its rate of violence, but it's not because of the school shootings. There's the equivalent of a school shooting in the United States every single day. And that's really what we should be concentrating on in terms of overall trends in violence. And that has been in uh, decline for about 25 years. So uh, although it is true that the number of rampage shootings highly... Um, uh, public, uh, uh, they get saturation coverage. That's what they're precisely what they're designed to do. But overall, Americans are safer now than they were, say, 25 years ago. But how would we we convince somebody that maybe gun control is is, is an important uh, uh, policy to pass when they have a, a fervent emotional attachment to their gun culture and their their world? Okay, so the, the the question of what is the best tactic of persuasion, given the highly polarized um, uh, issue like gun control, and 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 there are others which are uh, treated as identity badges for a, a, a almost a tribal coalition of uh, right wing or left wing politics, is I think a a, a, a major challenge, uh, and um, gun control is an obvious one. Uh, the uh, obviously just. Facts and, and logic have not been sufficient to uh, convince the diehards. That is also true of uh, issues like um, climate change, uh, like, like uh, evolution. Uh, part of it is, uh, must hinge on 
um, simply as a matter of, of persuasion and rhetoric of depoliticizing the issue to try to recruit spokespeople on the uh, right who uh, have concluded uh, enough is enough, this is uh, indefensible, and when someone who is visible uh, as a member in good standing of the political right uh, changes, then people can um, follow without feeling that they've betrayed their coalition. Now, I don't, I, I'm not a, um, a, a consultant in attitude change, so I can't say that I have the key to changing people's minds. But as a psychologist, I try to at least uh, identify what the roadblocks are. And in many of these issues, the roadblock is not in uh, awareness of facts or scientific uh, literacy, but rather it's that, that uh, people's professed beliefs, when it comes to an issue that for whatever reason becomes a uh, identity badge of a coalition, uh, those are the ones that are most resistant to change by persuasion and argument. This is one of the things that impressed me most about the book, Stephen, that you uh, talk about how, you know, take an issue like gun control, that it's not a question of persuading people with the facts, because people who will oppose gun control, you can be fairly sure that they will oppose a whole tranche of other things that are probably associated with the political right, maybe even the the, the hard right, that it's, um, you know, these issues on their own aren't ones that can be tackled with facts. It does seem to be much more about this sort of tribalism that leads leads people to support a whole range of views associated with a particular point of view. And I guess that's what makes it particularly hard to address. You know, you you, you can argue all you like about gun control, but actually it's an allegiance to an, an ideology that is the the, the the problem here. That's right. Also, in in um, I don't I don't want to downplay the importance of reasoned argument because while the the diehards and the, the the cheerleaders for the coalition may not be persuaded, there's also a sector of varying size that that that, that may be persuadable. They may be a uh, minority, but they also might be the the, the swing vote in a, a political issue. Also, you know, everyday new babies are being born. They um, don't necessarily aren't necessarily stamped with a coalition um, membership from the, the day they're born. And often we get uh, political change when. Uh, younger generations replace uh, older ones. So even if no one is convinced, uh, the proportion of people abiding by each ideology might change generation by generation. But that's in, in addition to trying to at least work around the coalitional psychology by recruiting spokespeople who uh, um, cross party lines. We are, of course, politically speaking, this year, last year, in a rather tribal place at the moment you know uh in in the uk um both of our parties have gone um further to the fringes than they were previously and um in america trump um is obviously doing that and i wonder if some people listening to you will say how far have you applied this this passionate analysis um of how people like phil was describing lapse into a group of um tribal likes and dislikes um to yourself, you know, it's not surprising that as a, you know, Ivy League American professor, you believe in climate change and um, are sort of uh, in favour, I'm probably sceptical of the war on drugs and um, all the kind of uh, punitive approaches to the war on terror and so on. There's a, there's a, there's a pack, um, sort of, there's a danger of a pack on, on your side of the argument too, isn't there? How do you, how do you 
look in the mirror and make sure you're not falling into that. Yes. Well, I, I am conscious of it, and certainly the the range of of uh, opinions on controversial issues that 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 uh, I, I endorse in the book and that I endorse more generally um, uh, kind of straddle a lot of the, the left right divides when it, when it comes, for example, to uh, crime. I believe that policing is an important part of the, um, the the solution to reducing crime rates. When it comes to climate change, I'm an advocate of nuclear power. Uh, it, the uh, when it comes to um, reducing crime, I'm uh, kind of open-minded over whether increased gun control will uh, actually make a, a dent on the uh, violent crime rate in the United States. Death penalty. And uh, death penalty, I'm, um, I, I'm opposed to the, to the death penalty, although I think it doesn't make much difference one way or another in terms of uh, affecting crime rates, but, uh, but on humanitarian grounds, I, I'm uh, opposed to it. And with I'm, nuclear power, do you think some people... Um, I saw in the book there's a kind of you know, arguments about how many people died from Fukushima compared to how many people might die mining. But again, might not some people say, well, you're part of a broad scientific community that has professional interest too, and some physicists are employed in nuclear power, and so they bring a, you know, they're another profession that hunts like a pack. Uh, they, they they could be, although I'm certainly uh, not part of any tribe of nuclear physicists, <laughs> being a uh, cognitive psychologist. And I don't, I'm not even sure that there is. In fact, I'm pretty sure there is not a consensus among uh, scientists that uh, increased nuclear power is part of this, the uh, the solution to climate change. So I'm I'm actually don't know what the uh, the, the correct tribal belief would be, even if I uh, expressed loyalty to that to that tribe. Uh, anyway, this is it would be naive to think that. I I am so neutral and unbiased as to be immune to these uh, illusions, and in fact, I talk about the the the, uh, the fact that uh, one of one of our biases is that each one of us thinks we're unbiased. And if I say I'm unbiased, well, of course I would. I mean, so does everyone. Uh, that having been said, I, I do my best to try to evaluate uh, policy options in terms of the, the good that they do, the good they've been shown to do to the extent that we can test them. I'd like, Phil, now to bring us in, in a way, to the core idea in the book, which is that all of this progress you're talking about was kick-started at a very special time in history by some very special thinkers. Uh, by the Enlightenment in the in the 18th century primarily. And I guess um, that was one aspect of the book that didn't convince me. And I suppose uh, partly that's because I don't see the Enlightenment as being, it's certainly not the beginning of an advocacy for reason. We can see plenty of people throughout the Middle Ages and, of course, back in antiquity, suggesting that in different ways. What reason means changes in different ages, but there were plenty of voices calling for that reason and also tolerance throughout the Middle Ages. You know, So I, I felt there was a bit of black and white in in that picture um and you know the enlightenment itself has a has has a mixed uh, legacy as well um obviously many enlightenment thinkers well they were all people of their time mostly men of their time subject to the the you know the biases and the prejudices of that time and i think that very often we see their thinking as being very much of that time and it's it's not clear to me that one can easily, linearly, or sometimes even at all, trace the the passage of what we might see as liberal progress from the Enlightenment through to what we now have in the 21st century. Well, I, I, I don't disagree in the sense that I don't think that it... Uh um, the 18th century saw ideas that sprang out of nowhere and that have carried the day ever since. And um, the, 
uh, indeed, the Age of Enlightenment was preceded by, as it's called, the Age of Reason. The uh, philosophers of the 17th century, such as uh, Hobbes and Spinoza and, and uh, Locke, and prior to that, the, the scientific revolution of uh, Bacon and uh, Newton and Galileo. And then it, uh, it continued into the era of classical liberalism in the first decades of the 19th century. And so it, this isn't really a, a, a book of uh, uh, intellectual history that tries to pinpoint and credit just that sliver of time as the origin of, of all of these developments. I really just want, needed a, uh, a rubric or a category or a label for a set of beliefs that, uh, that I wanted to credit for progress, but clearly they did have antecedents uh, prior to the, uh, uh, those decades, those, those special decades of the 18th century, but not unique decades. Could you just say a bit more about what was special about them then? The... Uh, I think there was a, a remarkable concentration of thinkers in, in those decades, partly bouncing off each other. L literally, they, they uh, debated each other in, in salons and uh, coffee houses and pubs and so on. But uh, the era that saw um, uh, Montesquieu and, and uh, Voltaire and Adam Smith and David Hume uh, and the uh, American uh, framers, Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson and, and uh, Adams, um, and Condorcet and Diderot, uh, Kant, uh, the, uh, who uh, often disagreed with each other. So there isn't as if there's a particular catechism of the, of the Enlightenment either. But there are some themes that I think were brought to the, uh, the forefront, and I identify them as reason, science, and humanism. And there's some institutions that they uh, bequeathed us, such as um, constitutional democracy, such as um, uh, markets, such as organizations of international cooperation, uh, scientific societies, that, um, that I say deserve credit for getting this, this uh, process started. Of course, it also all depends, Stephen, on, on which perspective you're looking at it from. Um, in Egypt, in the late, uh, late 18th uh, uh, century, uh, Napoleon invaded and brought reason, science and progress uh, to uh, that country in many ways. There was the Encyclopedia of Egypt and uh, brought new institutes and new ways of framing knowledge. But it also brought huge amounts of violence. And the whole 19th century and 20th century legacy of um, the civilizing mission has left us with um, quite a troubling legacy, wouldn't you agree? Well, yes, and Napoleon was, um, I would not identify him as a, an Enlightenment figure, although he did um, introduce certain uh, kinds of, of um, systematic rationality to, mm. to governance. But he, you know, he had himself crowned empire, he, he kind of uh, squashed democracy, reintroduced slavery, uh, had, was uh, cozy with the Pope. Um, engaged in, in um, massively um, murderous wars of conquest. Uh, in some ways, he, he was the, the, the first fascist rather than the uh, culmination of the Enlightenment. So, uh, you know, again, not to... Uh, these are somewhat arbitrary labels, and there isn't any official designation of who, who's in and who's out of the Enlightenment. But certainly in terms of carrying uh, ideas forward, Napoleon would be um, uh, a counterexample to the particular ideals that I've tried to single out. But in colonialism more generally, there was definitely a civilizing mission. The idea that the sort of the East was backward and superstitious and needed the sort of the cold Western reason to, to, to improve itself was one of the main uh, uh, motivators of, of the colonial enterprise. Although, uh, I mean, uh, imperial expansion is as old as civilization. So there was, the, there certainly was this, the veneer of the civilizing uh, 
um, mission. But uh, it's not as if uh, conquest was invented in the in the uh, 19th century. I mean, all all of the ancient uh, empires engaged in, in conquered as much as they could. That's just what empires did. Well, and, it was. You did mention slavery a minute ago, and this time, the late 18th century was something of a high point, wasn't it? In terms of you know transatlantic slavery and how big that loomed in the economy, how rich people were getting in cities like Bristol and and, and, and Liverpool. And of course, the founding fathers, you talk about a lot of them, own slaves. So um, does, have you, do you run into much resistance about that, highlighting these people from the age of slavery as the icons of the age of reason? Yes, the well, slavery too is as old as civilization. Slavery was the the rule, not the exception, until arguments against slavery began to get traction in the uh, late eighteenth century. Originally formulated by uh, Jean Bonnet and Montesquieu and Locke, and then uh, turned into a, a successful political campaign by the the, uh, the Quakers. Um, so it was the the uh, pushback against slavery was really what began in the Age of Enlightenment. Slavery itself was practiced certainly by the um, um, well by every civilization, and certainly way in advance of uh, the 18th century. Uh, although it may have reached simply by building momentum and becoming more efficient, the slave trade uh, peaked in the 18th century. But it wasn't because the idea of slavery originated then, uh, and uh, it, before the a European slave trade. There was the uh, Islamic slave trade. African civilizations enslaved each other. Uh, Roman Greece were slaveholding societies. So it's uh, I think it's a big mistake to think that that uh, to attribute slavery to the era of the Enlightenment. That was really the era in which slave the abolition movement started. Now, of course, it it, it is absolutely. Um, uh, true that many of, hypocritically, many of the great exponents of Enlightenment ideals, in uh, especially in America, were themselves slaveholders, and and before them, uh, Locke had a financial interest in the slave trade, even as he formulated arguments against it or against, against the institution of slavery. So this isn't really to you know, praise or deify these particular individuals as human beings. I mean, they, in many ways, they were scoundrels uh, or, or worse. It's really the ideas that they for, they formulated that uh, that we have to give them credit for. Um, well, okay, I wonder whether, you know, taking those ideas a bit further on, and I think one of the things, well, that you have already been criticized for in reviews of the book is um, your take on some of the philosophers who came after Marx um, the the, um, uh, the 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 postmodernists Derrida and and so on and particularly Nietzsche, um, and I guess there has been a criticism and I felt that there was um, a, a degree of heroes and villains here. It seemed to me that Marx, in particular, it's very hard to imagine uh, a, a, a character and a philosophy like his appearing without the Enlightenment. He seems to be very much an a product of the Enlightenment. Nietzsche, we can argue about. I wonder if you want to argue about Nietzsche. How, how do you? <laughs> how would you characterize yes. your view of Nietzsche? You know, I, I think it's. Uh, you know, again, these these labels are somewhat arbitrary because there isn't a, kind of a an Enlightenment uh, creed that you belong to or not. There isn't an Enlightenment club. There wasn't like an opening and closing ceremonies to the Enlightenment. So, is Marx an Enlightenment figure? Well, he came after it. He probably wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't occurred. But he certainly falls outside the set of ideas. That uh, 
that, that most people and that I would identify as the core of the Enlightenment. Well, that's been debated. I think there are people who, who would argue that Marx is very much a figure of the Enlightenment. But I wonder whether... You, you know, be, that, uh, Nietzsche, I think, is, is universally designated as a counter-Enlightenment figure. In fact, he explicitly um, uh, argued that the Enlightenment was a bad thing and, 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 and classical liberalism that, that followed that uh, it was the uh, anything that seeks to promote universal human flourishing is uh, a big mistake because the, uh, the, 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 the mass of people, the chattering dwarves, as, as he put it, uh, did not warrant um, uh, special effort or consideration that really what we should uh, praise and value and concentrate on would be the, the, the uh, transcendent hero. Um, so the notion of universal human rights, of universal human flourishing, would be quite alien to, to Nietzsche. There's certainly the notion of progress, since he was a, an exponent of civilizational decline. Uh, the idea of universal flourishing, that it's a good idea for people to be prosperous, uh, that just led to bourgeois decadence in, uh, in Nietzsche's view. And of course, Nietzsche's, um, the people Nietzsche influenced, uh, the, including the, the, uh, the fascists and, and the, uh, the Nazis, uh, were uh, adamantly counter-enlightenment, both in statement and in substance. Well, I think we could agree that Nietzsche is complicated, for sure. I, th I, I suspect um, what some people might, might feel is that some of the argument in your book is not so much about these figures and how we should categorize them, but about how they're received and presented and maybe lionized within the academic community today, that it might sound like almost an academic turf war between you know, um, uh, advocates of reason like yourself and the postmodernist hum humanities professors um, in American academia who uh, s seem, in, to your mind, it seems, to oppose a lot of what the Enlightenment stood for. Well, yes, because they certainly uh, postmodernism, which is a, a, a left-wing academic movement, uh, opposes... Um, science, in particular, the, or at least opposes science's claim to be testing explanations uh, as possible explanations to whether they're true or not. The, the uh, guiding ethos of science, namely some ideas are, are, are true, others false, we try to uh, distinguish them by uh, empirical testing, is uh, anathema to postmodernism. But outside the academia and outside the left, there's also the, uh, there's, there's a, a revival of uh, admiration for Nietzsche um, in the uh, alt-right, in, in among uh, neo-Nazis like Richard Spencer, uh, precisely because the uh, heroic individual is considered to be uh, the, the the vanguard of civilization and inherently worthy, and universal human flourishing is considered to be sentimental or or petty or bourgeois. Um, I wonder if just talk for a moment about women because you've got the the, the stuff in the book about um, sexual assault and so on going the right way like many other things. But here we are, four blokes <laughs> sat round. And of course, the time you're talking about, the, the, the 18th century women, um, however able, often wouldn't get a look in. Do you think when you draw on the ideas of people from that time, um, as well as missing perspectives from people from other parts of the world, there might be an important gender dimension to to the ideas as well as the fact it wasn't fair that the women didn't get to yeah. I think speak not, no, I think not so much the ideas, because certainly the um, uh, ideas that animated the um, uh, American Enlightenment, the American uh, founders and framers were influenced, for example, by Abigail Adams in her correspondence with, uh, with John Adams. Uh, the first arguments for 
feminism by Mary Astell were very closely modeled on, on um, Locke's arguments against um, slavery, uh, a, a kind of precursor to the Enlightenment, but smack dab in the age of reason. Uh, in the era of classical liberalism, John Stuart Mill would probably be the, the first to uh, credit his wife, uh, Harriet. Uh, so I don't, I don't think these ideas are, um, at least in the, the, the form that we value them today, are, are gendered. Uh, they, uh, in fact, they were exactly what opened the space to the, the natural widening of uh, recognition of rights from uh, white males to women and then to um, uh, other races and ethnic groups and ultimately to all of humanity and, and perhaps beyond that to, to uh, sentient creatures. Have you been to the, um, and this is in my mind just because I was there the other week, the, the Pantheon in, in Paris where you can see very explicitly some of these Voltaire and Rousseau kind of, I was going to say up on a pedestal, but they're not, they're down in a crypt, um, but explicitly taking the place of, of religious um, icons. And I, the first time I walked in, I just thought, I thought, gosh, is this sort of, is it possible to just build a temple of reason and then actually be, um, you know, we can tell ourselves everything's verifiable and empirical and everything else, but actually we're um, still enthralled to something when we walk around the Pantheon. And does, does that thought ever trouble you? Oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, as I uh, say in the outset, this is not a book of enlightened oratory. <laughs> that is, it, it's, it's really not, uh, let, let's, let's praise these great men and uh, a woman here or two. Uh, it, it's rather the ideas, and ideas have to come from somewhere, and, and you know we should footnote the people who originated them. But it's the ideas that we should dedicate ourselves to, not uh, not not to deify the individuals. Now, you know that having been said, there is an argument that well, since uh, heroic mythologies and religious beliefs often uh, worm their way into our hearts by. Uh, identifying heroes that people can look up to. Shouldn't secular humanism have, you know, its heroes uh, in order to uh, stake a claim on, on, on hearts and minds? Uh, shouldn't there be some kind of uh, iconography? Uh, should there be a humanist anthem or a uniform <laughs> or rallies? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but, uh, <laughs> but to the extent that we can recruit human emotion on the side of uh, ideals that we can defend than, than we ought to. I mean, another example in, in Paris is that um, the uh, um, Arch of Humanity that uh, extends the, that uh, line from the um, obelisk of the, in the Tuileries to the Arc de Triomphe, but then in La Défense, there's a, a modernist arch that's meant to symbolize uh, humanism and universal cooperation. And uh, bless the French for, for trying to <laughs> recruit iconography uh, and, and, and magnificence in service of this universal cause. Uh, whether this, will, this is effective in stirring people's uh, souls for these ideas <laughs> remains to be seen. But, but I hope so. I, I just wondered, I mean, with the, the French have always been very certain about their way of being rational. And I think that did have a bearing, Samir, on the way they did colonialism you were talking about before compared to the English. Yes, I mean, it's a difficult story because in a way they did bring lots of benefits to um, um, the countries that they colonised, but they also, because they had a particular view of how people should be, a kind of universalism, they didn't pay attention to um, uh, or have really enough respect for the different ways of that different societies organized and thought about themselves. I think we're living with a legacy of colonialism 
and the Enlightenment sort of mesh together to this day, I think, well, often it's, it's, it's quite hard to make some of the arguments for rational progress or democracy in places like the Middle East because they were introduced not through organic great thinkers, but at the end of a barrel of a gun. Well, well, yes, and uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, many of those guns were were Ottoman, not uh, European, in in much of the Middle East. So I, I don't think the problems in the Middle East can be blamed on the Enlightenment. Uh, quite the contrary, it's probably the area of the world that is most resistant to uh, ideas like universal human rights at present come come from the Middle East, and um, you know, I don't think either the English or the French are, are to be blamed for that. Uh, um, no, but we have you know. Some of the same kind of rhetoric that you're describing has been, has been used when we've been, you know, in recent wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan as well. So that, so that, that justification for what are often quite destructive, anti-rational consequences um, uh, uh, is still with us. Well, yes, and it's, it's, it's crucial not to identify everything that a Western power does with the Enlightenment. Quite the contrary, and, and I strongly resist... Uh, characterizing the Enlightenment as a uh, Western uh, idea. It, it, uh, there have been other uh, Enlightenments in, in other parts of the world, in, in uh, the um, heyday of Islamic civilization, uh, in uh, Mughal, India. Uh, to this day, there are strands of uh, the, the current emerging Enlightenment uh, uh, mixture, such as nonviolent resistance that originated in, with uh, Gandhi in India, himself influenced by Jainism. Uh, with um, uh, restorative uh, justice in Ubuntu uh, coming from uh, South Africa, from uh, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. Uh, So uh, uh, almost by definition, if reason is the the motivating force behind Enlightenment ideas, then it's going to be eclectic and and, uh, gather the best ideas from wherever they occur, Conversely, the West itself has always been rather squirrely about Enlightenment uh, ideals. The, the counter-Enlightenment um, principles of nationalism, of blood and soil, uh, of imperial, imperial expansion, of uh, American exceptionalism, uh, which have motivated foreign policies, including many foreign policy disasters, have hardly been Enlightenment values. Let's um, finish, because time is ticking, where we started, though, which is on the the, the, the core of um, cheerfulness and um, an upbeat reading of the world that runs through this um, book. Um, Phil, you said um, amen to that roughly at the, at the, at the, at the beginning, um, but just for prospect readers and listeners, um, looking at Trump and whatever idiocy he's um, been dabbling in most recently. What do you see around the world that gives you most reason to think that things might be better in 10 years than they are now? <laughs> well, I have to say, Stephen's book made, gave me some hope that things aren't as, as crap as uh, as they seem to be. <laughs> and I thank it for that. And I thank you for that. Um, and I, I, I particularly liked um, the emphasis on looking at looking at the evidence you know that's not good that's not the the whole of the equation but it's not done enough if we define our goals and that's something that reason isn't necessarily going to help us with that's a political decision but once we've defined them let's look at what whether our policies work or not and that really doesn't seem to happen enough it seems that policies and we see it of course in the uk at the moment are pushed through on an ideological basis regardless of whether there's any reason to believe that they're going to achieve the goals that 
we have set for them. And I really like, the, the, you know, the argument that we simply look at the data to see if what we want is working or not. I think that really needs to be emphasised. So that is a reason why we could be cheerful if our politics was in line with it. But Stephen, finally, um, like, do you think our politics is going to come back to that idea that actually in the end... The truth has power. Well, I, I don't want to make a, a prophecy or a prognostication, but the, the ideas are certainly out there. And at the same time as we have the challenges to, to reason and, and uh, evidence and um, enlightenment values from, uh, from Trump, we also have uh, tremendous movements towards rationality. We have evidence-based policy as a, as a concept, evidence-based medicine. We have data-driven policing. Uh, there are, uh, we have, we have evidence-based uh, uh, foreign aid. Uh, so the the uh, ethic is there, uh, and uh, whether it will prevail, we don't know, but it certainly has the potential for doing so. Fantastic. Thanks for coming in, Stephen. Thanks also to Phil and to Samir. And thank you all for listening. I'm Tom Clark. Um, the producer was Jay Elwes, and you can read Philip's review of Stephen's new book, Enlightenment Now, on our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk and you might note that our subscription rates are very reasonable so please stay tuned and uh, join us again on the Prospect Podcast before long.